Hi everyone, welcome to the UCL East Lunch Hour Lecture Series. Um, so this week's lecture is going to be on Towards Net Zero, a life cycle assessment as a decision-making tool for low-carbon solutions. So I'm Kate Jones, I'm Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity in the Department of Genetics, Evolution and the Environment. And I've got the real privilege of chairing this lunch hour lecture for UCL East and I would like to welcome our two amazing speakers that we have with us this week. So the first is Professor Paola Lettieri. She's the Academic Director of UCL East's new campus in Stratford, uh, which is called UCL East. Uh, Professor Paola Lettieri has joined UCL in 2001 and she spent about five years in R&D at BP Chemicals and she was a research fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering at the time which was the first female engineer to be honoured with such a prestigious award. So very lucky to have her here at UCL. She's an international expert in fluidization and life cycle assessment. And, and she uses those, those methods to um, apply these to chemical, nuclear, waste management and the energy sector. So her work um, of her life cycle assessment group here at UCL has aided the development and scale up of, of uh, of industrial energy from waste processes, influence plastic waste management strategies and uh, determine radiological impacts of spent nuclear fuel reprocessing for the very first time. She was a recipient of a prestigious senior research fellowship at the Royal Academy of Engineering and Levy Hume Trust for her work on nuclear waste management and life cycle assessment. And she's published over 250 papers and she's a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering. So our second speaker is Charnet Chow. She's a research fellow at the UCL Plastic Waste Innovation Hub. So Charnet has an has MPhil in biochemical engineering, and she specializes in applying life cycle thinking to analyze the environmental impact of products and systems. So her, her work really focuses on the application of this life cycle assessment across multiple sectors. So these include forestry, consumer packaging, construction, and healthcare. And she advises on the sustainability of new interventions and, and implementations. So she's working in a, in a multidisciplinary manner and her life cycle assessment work aims to provide kind of the evidence base that we really need for governmental and industrial policy making. So welcome to you guys and thanks very much for joining us on the lunch hour lecture. So just before I hand over to them though, I just want to let you know that um, we'll have some time for questions at the end. And these questions can be submitted at any point during the lecture. So um, if you go to Slido and enter the event code, hashtag UCL East, um, the details I think will be put in the chat just now for you to, to add in your, your talk. So you can add in any uh, questions at any time and we'll answer those at the end. And remember on Slido, Slido, you can upvote any questions as they come in. So if you see one that you particularly want answered, then give it a thumbs up and, and, and I'll, I'll prioritise it. So I'd really like to pass over to our amazing speakers now. So Paola and Shana, over to you. Thank you so much for the introduction and really for the invite uh, to talk about uh, the research that uh, we have been doing uh, in, uh, in chemical engineering uh, and as part of the Plastic Waste Innovation Hub. So the context of this talk is about sustainability and how do we make decisions that address the sustainable development goals in achieving a better and more sustainable future for all, while of course preserving the ecosystem. I really like the diagram that shows on the left-hand side the ecosystem services because it's there to remind us about the many and varied benefits that we as humans get from, from nature. And really in, in all of its functions from provisioning, regulating and supporting our development and enabling us of course to develop also as a cultural society. So between the sustainable development goals and the ecosystem services is really a reminder of the environmental degradation that we have been witnessing over the last couple of hundred of years, in particular, while the socio-economic development of our contemporary society was, was happening. So the, in this, on this slide, you're basically looking at 12 indicators that are there to capture the major features and changes that have occurred in the last couple of hundred of years. 
whether you're looking at um, urbanization or even to the level, to the degree of globalization and connectivity that we have been able to achieve. Obviously, all of these development uh, as comes with a cost, uh, and, uh, and perhaps at the time uh, we didn't know that there would have been an obviously attached to this. But planet Earth, as we know, has witnessed an incredible change, uh, and the human pressure on, on the Earth system has, has really increased exponentially, again, uh, since basically the economic development has, has increased. So these diagrams are there to show you basically the great acceleration that uh, in some, in some of these effects has been seen since the mid 50s. So the Anthropocene now effectively is threatening the stability of the Holocene. So we're all aware that uh, the relationship of the relationship between the rising concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and the global warming. Uh, we're all aware of the target to basically limit warming to 1.5 degrees uh, uh, since prior to industrial um, uh, development. And what you see on this, uh, on this diagram is basically the observations and the, and the modeling related to a one degree um, global warming change and how that compares uh, with the 1.5 degree Cs, uh, which we are targeting at the moment, uh, and what it would actually look like if we were to exceed 1.5. So clearly, unless we limit global warming with strong actions so that we reduce CO2, methane, and other greenhouse gases emissions, then we run the risk that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Cs will be beyond reach. So we are at a point where we have entered a, a, a very important decade where we need to stop that exponential increase and we need to basically bend the curve so that we can continue to evolve as a society, economically, socially, and continue to thrive by maintaining the Earth system within a safe set of planetary boundaries. And this is a concept that was introduced uh, back in 2009, and the graph is, is referenced to a, a paper in science in 2015. So what the authors have done here is to propose nine planetary boundaries that should really guide the way uh, human beha humans behave during the Anthropocene. So here we are basically looking at um, climate change, ozone depletion, and acidification, which relate to climate. And then we've got a number of other slow variables, as the others have, have called them, that basically are there to regulate the capacity of the resilience of the planet. So here we've got the land system change, the fresh water use, the biosphere integrity, but there also nitrogen and phosphorus. And we've got a couple of question marks on this graph because it relates to uh, air uh, aerosol loading uh, and chemical pollution, which are still difficult to quantify. So the way to read it uh, is to basically look at the green zone, which highlights the area of basically low risk, and then the yellow zone, which basically shows uh, the area of uh, increased risk and uncertainty. And then the red zones are obviously what uh, um, need to be uh, um, addressed quickly because uh, basically they show that we have already transgressed three of these boundaries. So what this is all telling us is that uh, business as usual is really not an option, option anymore. And so it's about investing in transformation so that we can move quickly from a fossil fuel economy to a green carbon economy. So net zero means uh, effectively a huge amount of technology transformation that has got to occur in the next 10 years if we want to basically achieve the targets that we have globally committed to. And this is not a small task because it means emissions from homes and transport and farming and industry will have to be avoided completely or offset by planting trees, for example, so to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. 
So Charnet later, for example, will show you how we have applied a life cycle assessment in, in a study with the Woodland Trust in relation to afforestation. So here the challenges uh, then related to the transformation of the transport system, so with electric vehicles uh, and uh, um, carbon capture and storage, and of course, uh, more um, green um, uh, power. So what have we said so far? We're talking about uh, effectively a simple relationship between the growth in population in our affluence. It's all underpinned by technology and we have seen the impact that this has had on the environment. So technology underpins what we are able to do today and as we have seen in the, in the previous slide, also what we need to put in place so that we can revert basically the exponential uh, situation we are witnessing. So it is the T that we are interested in, and it is the technology that uh, um, then uses the, the, the assessment of really the new technologies that we use the life cycle assessment methodology for. So LCA, in short, it's, it's basically a standardized, standardized methodology which enables us to assess the environmental impact of a new process, a new product, or a new service that is put in place so to address the problems that we have been talking about. So this effectively means then adopting a life cycle thinking approach whatever is the question we are addressing, uh, means looking at the resources needed for a new product or process, the material processing, the manufacturing, the distribution, the use and end of life. So the entire life cycle needs to be assessed. And the LCA enables us to basically identify at every step of this life cycle what needs to be improved so that we basically are enable the technology transformation that we have been talking about. Clearly, along the life cycle, we need to be able to maximize opportunities for recycle, recycle, reuse, and recovery, so to improve um, the situation from where we are. So, what I've got on this slide is really um, a reminder of uh, the uh, sustainable development goals. Uh, they talk to us not only about the environment, but really the three level and the complexity between the social, economic and ecological systems, uh, which are all uh, intertwined. So life cycle assessment uh, comes uh, uh, to help uh, really at all of these levels. Uh, whether we are applying environmental life cycle assessment to assess the environmental impact of new products and processes, or whether we do work with the social life cycle assessment to basically assess improvements related to societal issues. And equally, the life cycle costing then addresses the economical level. So when we look at the, at the application of the LCA, here we basically have a choice and it depends on what kind of question we are trying to answer, whether it's about a particular product manufacturer, then the boundary is all related to that. And so the problem is actually a small one from gate to gate, as we say, was whether actually we are interested in a slightly bigger analysis from the extraction of raw materials to the processing and manufacture or whether actually is the entire life cycle from cradle to grade. And so it becomes really a very large problem that the life cycle assessment then can help um, uh, analyze in all of, on, on all of the steps. Applying life cycle assessment means uh, uh, answering questions. And so the LCA will, will give us an answer depending on what the question is and what we are actually trying to quantify so if we are interested in the level of SO2 emissions from a particular process, then we could be looking at assessing the acidification potential. So what we call basically looking at a midpoint in the cause effect chain, 
or otherwise look basically at the societal concern that comes with SO2 emissions, which is directly related to the loss of biodiversity. So again, depending on what we're trying to answer, who the audience is, then we would be applying a life cycle assessment and define the um, impacts that we want to determine accordingly. So we have been doing LCA for 15 years plus now, and we have been, tackle, we have been tackling many different questions. And, and proud to say that we have been working with many different sectors and industries. What we have got on this slide is really the currently active research projects that we are involved with. And which are net, we're going to give you a flavor for some of these examples, not all of them. Um, and it's really about uh, more than the results themselves. What kind of questions uh, have we tried to address uh, and how have they been used? Um, so I'm going to tackle, uh, uh, I'm going to give you an example of uh, geothermal energy and uh, also the work that we have been doing uh, with the National Nuclear Laboratory and Sellafield looking at nuclear waste management. And Charnet will then take you through two recent examples uh, where we have applied LCA to the single use of masks versus reusable face masks, and also the work that we have been doing with the Woodland Trust. So first of all, this is an example about geothermal energy. So why, why geothermal energy? We said that we need to move from a fossil driven economy to a uh, green economy. So this basically means uh, trying to um, amplify effectively the range of uh, uh, clean energy that uh, we, can, uh, we can access. Um, so we have, uh, uh, with funding from the European community, we have been involved on a large scale project, uh, which has looked at the life cycle assessment of the Helly Shady plant in Iceland. So this is the first time that an LCA study is done on this plant. It's a geothermal plant. So this is actually one of the largest combined heat and power geothermal complex in the world. It produces 300 megawatt of electricity and 133 megawatt of hot water. In the big context, geothermal energy it's, uh, contributes in a very small way uh, uh, these days. Uh, so only with 0.3% really of the global electricity production relies on geothermal energy today. However, in order to achieve the targets that uh, uh, we are aware of, uh, it is expected to increase fivefold by 2040. So geothermal energy basically targets heat, which is stored in the earth crust to generate clean renewable energy. So typically this means excavating two deep wells, which are used to basically inject cold water as it is shown in this picture, uh, if you look at the uh, well under number one, and then basically there is a production well which takes the hot water which is mined from the rocks underneath the crust and the hot water it comes to the surface and it is used to produce electric energy in a steam turbine. The condensed water is then pumped back down and so you have a cycle. So the construction of these kind of plants then requires uh, deep down wells with a lot of steel casing. So the life cycle assessment that we have done wanted to look at the what we call the hotspot analysis. So wanted to identify basically which phase in the construction, in the operation, uh, and also in the end of life basically contributes to the environmental impact. So this diagram uh, I'm, not, I'm not going into, into great detail and not expecting you having to understand all the details of it, but if I can get your attention to look at the red bars, basically this tells you that the construction phase, it's basically the phase that has got the 
highest environmental impacts. And this is related in, in particular to the use of steel for the casing when uh, drilling the, um, as, as, I've show, as I was showing you earlier. So we have used basically that understanding then to take the study closer to home. And we have worked with um, an engineering company that uh, is uh, uh, delivering the United Downs Deep geothermal power plant in Cornwall. So this is the very first geothermal plant in the UK. Uh, so geothermal engineering is developing the plant and I've co-authored uh, the, the papers that are on this screen. So the, the learnings from the Hallishady plant uh, uh, basically showed that construction is where uh, we need to basically do our best to minimize the environmental impact. So, for example, uh, reducing uh, or increasing the amount of uh, uh, recycled steel uh, for the casing, but also um, reducing uh, the use of diesel engine machineries uh, during the drilling and the various construction phases and replacing them with electric vehicles, for example, electric systems. The question we have uh, asked and which basically is shown on this graph is, uh, uh, is, is different. And, and it's how, how does geothermal energy compare with other intermittent clean source of energies that can be wind and solar, for example. So when you look at the diagram, you basically see that if you take a climate change at the top, nuclear has the lowest carbon, carbon, carbon emissions. And if you look at the um, plant in Cornwall, then which is the red one, is basically the third uh, uh, exam the third type to give you the lowest carbon emissions. Um, however, what has to be noticed is that depending on what impact category you are interested in, and that depends on the particular question that LCA is, is trying to answer, so whether it's climate change or ecotoxicity or human toxicity, then the, the, the ranking between the different types of energy changes. So there isn't a single answer that actually LCA can give you, but depending on what you are looking at and what particular step in the process then you're trying to improve, then you would be looking at the uh, impact category, which is mostly relevant to that, and the LCA would be guiding you on how to improve basically that impact. So I've just shown you that nuclear is basically the cleanest of, uh, uh, of the types of uh, uh, energy systems that we could be uh, um, using. And as we know, in order to reach uh, net zero, nuclear is expected to provide more energy than, uh, than currently uh, does. So just trying to move this away. Okay, so what we what I've got here is basically a diagram which shows uh, uh, the problem related with nuclear energy and which is about nuclear waste management. So how should we deal with the solid nuclear wastes? Should we go for a direct disposal or should we reprocess the spent nuclear fuel? And what is the effectively dirtiest step in the cycle, whether it's direct or reprocessing? And how can these implications be quantitative, quantitatively analyzed? So this is the kind of questions that, again, the life cycle assessment methodology can help us with. When we look at uh, uh, nuclear energy, sorry, my screen has frozen. Okay. We, uh, we basically are uh, then looking at uh, uh, different uh, uh, potential scenarios uh, so for, for nuclear waste management. And this is really whether uh, both uh, plutonium and uranium are disposed, which basically means having a geological uh, facility, depository, uh, uh, disposal facility, or whether we are actually disposing of plutonium by recycling uranium or recycling both, or again, doing something different. So here we have worked with Sellafield, with the National Nuclear Laboratory, 
with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority as part of the distinctive project sponsored by the EPSRC. And we have applied a life cycle assessment to all of these four scenarios so with the view of basically enabling then the decision making of what the next step needs to be, um, whether it's for reprocessing or whether it is for an open cycle. So first of all, this is a tricky area of work because uh, uh, the, there wasn't really a methodology available that would enable to determine in, in a life cycle assessment context, the radiological impacts of radionuclides from nuclear waste. So this has really been at the heart of the problem that we have tackled. And Andrea Paolillo's PhD thesis really has, has tackled this. And, and Andrea has developed a new methodology, UCRAD, that enables now to determine the radiological impacts of radionuclides in an LCA context. And then what we have done is to apply that methodology to scenario number three from the previous slide, which basically says uh, what kind of uh, impacts would we have if we were to apply a scenario in the UK where both plutonium and uranium are recycled. So the way to read this diagram is basically that uh, if you are reprocessing nuclear waste, then all of the non-radiological impact categories are rather happy and actually happier than the disposal because they all have um, lower, lower impact. When we, however, look at the ionizing radiations, then this is the case where the direct disposal then has significantly lower emissions than the reprocessing. Because of course, in this case, we're basically burying underground in a geological disposal facility, all of the nuclear waste. So at this point, I shall ask Charnet to take control of the screen so that she can take you through another couple of different examples to show you how we have applied the life cycle assessment. So I'm a research fellow working at the UCL Plastic Waste Innovation Hub. So a bit of background of the hub is that we're a multidisciplinary team of researchers that includes um, scientists, engineers, designers, um, social scientists, such as um, behavior science, et cetera. Um, and we all tackle plastic waste issues from different angles. Um, so, and the hub essentially aims to provide research back recommendations um, to assist decision making and to inform policy as well. So um, the two case studies that I'm going to tell, take you through, the plastic shoe shelter um, was helping the Woodland Trust revamp their tree planting policy and then the face mask is to try um, help us decide which is um, better for us, better for the environment for us to proceed with regards to masks. Yes, so um, before diving into the Woodland Trust case study, let's talk about carbon sequestration. Um, so um, trees are great for storing carbon and depending on the age, the size and what type it is, they do vary in terms of how much they can absorb each year. Um, as you can see in this table, um, the tree range um, from 10 to 50 and they each, so the older they are, the bigger they are, they do absorb more trees annually. Uh, it's not absorb more trees, um, car um, carbon sequest um, more annually. So if we take um, the carbon dioxide that was emitted in 2019 in the UK, we amounted about 450 million tonnes of CO2. And uh, what is that in relation? That's how many trees would we need to um, sequest all these carbon? Um, this will amount to about 4 billion 50 years old trees or 27 billion 10 year old trees. And considering Back in 2015, our woodland area was about 13%, woodland cover was about 13%, and that was equivalent to 3 billion trees. We definitely don't have enough trees in the UK to sequest the amount we emit at the moment. Uh, so, um, so going to the Woodland Trust case study, um, we were approached by the Woodland Trust back in 2019, um, talking about the... Um, 
yeah, the next zero goals of the UK. And um, they have translated this to us requiring about a million new acres of tree cover um, to assist with um, the net zero goals combined with other initiatives. That have. Um, but this is equivalent to about 2 billion trees, planting 2 billion trees more. But the issues for that is that most trees require being grown at tree nurseries before being planted on sites with plastic tree shelters. So the main question that the Woodland Trust gave us was that does the environmental impact associated with using tree shelters outweigh the benefit of having new trees? Um, if we are going to use tree shelters, whether or not it should be recyclable or biodegradable, or what other um, end-of-life options do we have with um, for using tree shelters? So um, for us, whilst we um, set the goal and scope, we wanted to capture, there were key things that we wanted to capture, including making sure that we compare planting trees with and without shelters, um, comparing different types of shelters, whether currently available or what are, what are the future options of tree shelters as well, and then comparing different combinations of waste treatment for these, as well as considering um, the carbon sequestration of new trees. Um, the research carried out include going on site visits. So we went to um, a tree nursery to look at how trees are grown in nursery. So that's part of the life cycle of um, new trees. Um, so as you can see, you can see that they're grown in nurseries where they've been plotted in trays before being sent on um, site for um, planting. So we also did some literature review in terms of how, how um, shelters do degrade under weathering or grazing, um, the fragmentation rate or mineralization rates. Um, but we also looked at, um, did interviews with some stakeholders in terms of how best or what are the logistics of taking, um, collecting these shelters for waste disposal as well. So that is all part of our data gathering to set up our um, scenarios. As you can see, this is our um, system boundaries. And first of all, um, the first thing that we wanted to look at is tr growing trees without shelters. So this is in the green box now. So what we considered um, for this is the material sourcing for growing trees at nurseries before delivering it to planting sites, but also considered the removal of any packaging that is needed to transport these trees. Um, and then we looked at multiple scenarios that include tree shelters. So conventional tree shelters, bio-based tree shelters or biodegradable. Um, we looked at that and like combined it with different um, weight end of life treatments. So recycling, landfill, incineration um, after five years of using it. So to be able to compare planting with shelters and without shelters, we need a functional unit so that we can compare it. And that is a single tree surviving past the five years establishment period. Um, the reason why we chose five years, it's because um, under current guidelines, tree shelters need to support tree, tree growth for five years because after five years, the annual survival rate of a tree is near enough 100%. So it's freestanding already. So that's why we did that. Um, to be able to grow, um, so normally looking at survival rates, um, growing, um, we need to plant two trees to have one tree survive without shelters and about 1.2 trees to grow, um, to plant 1.2 trees with shelter support to have one tree surviving after five years. That's the, that's the stat that we, um, that's the assumption that we use for this study. So in terms of climate change results, um, there's a lot of results here because we did um, do a lot of scenarios, but I want you to focus on the green. Um, the green is the no shelter. As you can see, um, planting trees without shelter will um, have the least environmental, so the least climate change score compared to the results um, generated by planting trees with shelter. So um, as you can see, there's um, we did a lot of, um, as I explained previously, we did a lot of different um, um, scenarios with um, shelters and like how they are treated at the end of life. Um, so current scenarios in terms of how they degrade already or what if they are fully collectible for incineration with energy recovery and recycling. But having said this, um, if we look at um, how much 
CO2, um, a tree could um, sequest um, by just planting it. So by age five, um, a tree can would have cumulatively um, sequestered 32 kilograms of carbon dioxide, which is a lot higher than how much is used to um, plant trees with shelters in general. So in this case, um, in the climate change um, impact category case, planting trees with shelter is um, does not outweigh the benefit of a tree um, being grown itself. However, we do look need to look at other environmental impacts. So the potential microplastics. So from literature, we um, calculated that um, with degradation rates, so like fragmentation, so how much it fragments by um, by UV radiation, by being under the sun, but also how much gets taken up by microorganism in, in the soil. So we call that mineralization. So if we take into that account for um, conventional shelters, it's about 50 grams um, and 60 grams for PLA shelters if they were um, if they were used on after five years. Um, but if they don't mineralize or they don't get taken up then it'd be about 80 to 150 grams of plastic being left on land and not being able to be collected after five years. So if we scale this up to 2 billion trees, this would be a lot of plastic. Um, um, as a whole, um, what we did was to, there are trade-offs in terms of environmental impact. So other, other impacts that we look at includes acidification, land use, water use, um, eutrophication, and there are so to get an uh, overall environmental impact score, we normalize these results using um, planetary boundary or global carrying capacity normalization factors that were um, developed by the European Commission um, and then also weighted it accordingly in terms of taking into account of expert and public opinions on which environmental impact are most important and also the robustness of um, evaluation as well. So as a whole, um, planting without shelters thus come out the most environmentally beneficial, um, but then and bio-based shelters thus come out as the least purely, mostly because um, of the aggregation, um, ag sorry, the agriculture needs of planting biomass to support um, the making of PLA shelters. But of course, if um, bio-based shelters were to be made of um, bio-waste, then the impact score will also be reduced. So this could be something, another um, next study that we could have a look at in terms of future, um, future scenarios of um, shelters. Um, so yes. Um, as a whole, from our um, from our study, we do say that um, planting trees without shelters is um, um, is recommended um, before recommending shelter using shelters and being able the waste management system wise we prefer shelters be recycled before it's incinerated for um, energy um, for energy from waste. So incineration with energy recovery. Um, a caveat with the study is that it doesn't con consider the ease of planting trees in terms of going up to the land. So this is for, um, so we wanna emphasize that the life cycle assessment does um, inform how to um, um, inform decision-making in a way where we need to consider other factors um, besides the environmental impact. Um, because sometimes if it's harder to um, assess uh, access the planting site, then maybe tree shelters um, is needed. But if it's accessible and you can go back and plant trees, then it might be better to not use shelter. So, um, so moving on to the next um, case study. Um, so back in 2020, or ultimately, um, we're still technically in this pandemic, um, well, we see uh, increased use of single-use face masks. And this it sparked our initial case study on single-use versus reusable masks for the public, purely because also that there was a shortage on um, single-use masks at the time. So as 
the hub wants make want, wanting to make recommendations on whether single-use versus reusable masks were um, is better. We did a multidisciplinary analysis which considered um, the technical efficacy, the cost, um, the behavior, and also the environmental impact of using uh, masks as well. So um, Paola and I were part of the life cycle assessment team to look at reusable masks versus single-use masks. And what we um, assumed was that, what if everyone uses one mask per day for a whole year? This will mean that everyone will use 655 65 surgical masks and about but only seven to 12 reusable masks per person if we assume that the mask can last 30 to 50 washes. So now that will then bring down the waste arising will decrease dramatically. We switch from surgical to reusable mask, um, over 80% reduction of waste. And in terms of climate change, we looked at different scenarios of how we can supply surgical masks. So whether or not we supply surgical masks from China, Turkey, um, or the UK, but sourcing materials differently. So that sourcing masks more locally or surgical single-use masks more locally would be more environmentally um, preferable. But for the reusable mask scenario, we also looked at where, um, whether we should um, hand wash the mask or use machine wash the mask. Um, so ultimately we think, um, so our study shows that reusable masks is, um, is more environmentally preferable, um, especially when it's, especially if we machine wash the mask as that would be more efficient in terms of water use and electrical use as well. Cool. So, um, so how does that, now, um, what about in health care? So since we published that study, um, the study got a lot of attraction in terms of doing more on um, the health care side. So the NHS have pledged to become more carbon neutral by 2040. And because of the um, PPE waste arising due to COVID, there's a lot more pressure in terms of wanting healthcare sector to reduce um, the single use waste. So um, a lot of project partners came to us in terms of asking what are the actual environmental impact associated with mask use in the healthcare sector. But also now that um, shortages of mask, single-use masks isn't an issue, what is the most environmentally preferable way to supply masks? So is it to minimize supply chain, but um, supply chain impacts of single-use masks or reusing single-use masks by decontamination or or out straight employing um, reusable masks. So there, um, we, so to scope out the study, we, um, we realized that different masks are used for different situations. So medical graded masks, such as the surgical masks are used in preventative situations. So a low risk situation in, in healthcare, but in high risk of infection area, they use um, PPE graded masks. So FFP3 mask was recommended recommended um, um, for healthcare worker um, before shortages um, arises. So we're going to focus on um, PPE graded masks um, as we talked about surgical and cloth masks previously. Um, but the three scenarios that we looked at was um, using the FFP3 mask used once and disposed, um, whether and then to our ICME partners, they said that um, decontaminating FFP3 masks via vaporized hydrogen peroxide to be the most effective. And that tends to um, mean that they can be reused five to 21 times. And also there's the option of using reusable solid half masks where the mask can last um, more than a year, but we at for this study, we assume the lifespan of the mask is one year, um, but the filter change could be either monthly or up to six monthly, depending on the breathability of, um, of using when using the mask. But of course, um, this is reused by a white clean using antibacterial wipe. So the system boundaries for, for this, um, I can take you through clearly. Um, again, the red, um, the red box shows the single-use mask. So the FFP3 mask, we considered sourcing the materials, 
manufacturing of the mask and the packaging, as well as the waste bag, because um, all masks are treated as clinical waste. So um, they are put in the in, in um, clinical bags for incineration. Um, so this is the um, red, um, so the first scenarios. And then we looked at the reusable, reusing FFP3 mask prior decontamination. So we considered the manufacture of cleaning materials as well and like disposing of the, these cleaning materials. And thirdly, um, for the reusable half mask, we included the replacement of filters and straps um, when they get loose so that they can continue to use the mask, but also the manufacture of wipes and disposal of these wipes as well. Um, to be able to um, compare all these all three scenarios, we the functional use functional unit use for this was one year of mask use per healthcare worker. So, so this assumes like two hundred and forty shifts a year and um, a year, but seven to twelve hour shift meant that they will need um, to. Take, put on and take off the mask twice in one shift. So the climate change result is very telling, um, pretty similar to the previous graph where single-use mask, um, single-use mask being um, sourced differently, you can see that sourcing locally is more environmentally beneficial, but um, reusing and um, reusing FFP3 masks and using reusable half masks is more environmentally beneficial in the climate change impact category. And to be honest, it's pretty much the same in other impact category as well. And of course, the more you reuse the mask, um, le um, the less impact it has. But um, we recognize that um, the amount of time that you will reuse the um, FFP3 mask or reuse a filter depend is dependent on the person, depending on how um, how easy it is for you to lose a mask or even um, how how you feel about reusing a filter that has been in that's been in um, that's been um, installed for however long so um, so there's other factors that will come into play in terms of the actual environmental impact of using reusable masks so in terms of race um, waste arising, um, as you can see, um, single-use face masks will have the highest waste arising, and this considers ma uh, mask packaging, wipes, and disposable disposable bags. And here you can see that okay, for reusing FFP3 masks, it is lower, but actually the waste arise arising from using solid half masks, reusable solid half masks, even will have the lowest. Um, Waste arising as a whole. So this also further shows that we can't just use climate change results to um, make decisions in terms of which um, which um, which scenario or which mask option that we want to um, employ. But you need to take in consideration other factors as well. So as a whole, reusable um, and reusing mask um, is more environmentally preferable. Um, if we are to use um, the traditional FFP3 mask or even surgical mask, we should be sourcing them more locally to lower the impact and the choice of how um, which reusable option um, to use does depends on reusing and logistics as well. So I'll pass this on back to, um, to Paola and... And I am aware that we have used uh, quite a lot of the time and we would like certainly to leave time for questions. This talk, it's, it's basically part of the UCList series of the lunch hour lectures at UCL. So with my UCList director's hat on, I simply wanted to finish off by uh, saying that um, uh, UCList is opening next year in September 2022. The context of this talk has been sustainability, and UCLIST is our sustainable living lab campus at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. It's, uh, it is where we will be launching, in fact, in the context of what you just heard us talking about, a couple of sustainability modules to teach our students at UCLIST about the tools to make decisions for a sustainable future but also teaching life cycle assessment uh, with the multiple applications uh, as, as examples uh, for, uh, for learning. 
In relation to the uh, Sustainable Living Lab campus, uh, it's perhaps uh, a, uh, a novel uh, way of a different way of describing the university campus. So we are at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and the plan at UC List, uh, I like to say, is that of, uh, um, uh, has, has been that of creating and, and therefore also managing the campus as a living landscape. And our Kate Jones, uh, who is uh, uh, with us uh, um, today, she's actually been in the driving seat as the expert in ecology and biodiversity to ensure that uh, we, we develop a, land, a living landscape strategy at UC List that benefits uh, 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 the park itself, but also that uh, enables us to take advantage from censoring learning from the park and the way nature in the park adapts to changes. So there is quite a lot to come and that we are really looking forward to as we open next September. But today is also the day when the London Legacy Development Corporation is uh, uh, launching a shift. So the new innovation district at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park of which UCL has been one of the founding partners. And the vision really relates to what I just said in the previous slide is really about the park being uh, um, London's living test bed. As we've been talking about the need of developing technology, developing low carbon technology, we've got to test technology and include the public in that testing so that the technology responds to really societal questions and challenges locally and obviously then globally. So I'm going to leave this here so that we can take some of your questions. And hopefully I have stopped sharing. <laughs> Thanks, Paolo and Shana. That was absolutely brilliant. Really, really great and really topical as well with all of the things that are going on with the pandemic and, and tree planting. So it was really fascinating. So thank you very, very much for that. We've had so many questions. <laughs> I'm not sure we've got time for all of them, but well, I'll, I'll do my best because it was really fascinating. So there are a couple which I kind of grouped together, actually, because um, they, they're kind of asking about whether we can use this uh, LCA process as a virtuous feedback loop so mm -hmm. that, you know, can we change societal opinion? Can, you know, on the flip side, can you stop companies from greenwashing and claiming they're doing it? And also, you know, how does it, how does it feed into this, you know, the lots of passion and, um, and need for a circular economy? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kate. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's many questions into one. <laughs> and, and the simple answer, I suppose, is yes to all of them, in the sense that life cycle assessment uh, is certainly one of the methodologies that, when, because it can quantify uh, and predict the environmental impacts uh, of any transformation that we are aiming to achieve, then yes, you can spot greenwashing if obviously what is being declared is not actually um, right. Uh, and, and yes, I mean, it's, 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 it is what can enable that change in, in society and in the way we behave because it can actually alert in the way, uh, you know, Charnet, for example, has been presenting in relation to the single versus reusable masks. You know, one can demonstrate the impact of uh, uh, you know, using one type versus the other, but also the impact of how we dispose of them. And, uh, uh, and it's not just about technologically or, or, or environmental impacts, it's actually very much about uh, uh, educating ourselves and the public uh, on behaving differently so that uh, uh, the way what we do in, impacts uh, you know, in the world around us, uh, needs to change about the change and needs to start from what we do. Janet, would you like to come in? Yeah, um, yeah, I find the, um, the question quite interesting because I'm always thinking, because um, I have to say that life cycle assessment is as good as um, the data you get from it. So in terms of greenwashing, like um, it's very hard, especially for a company to give us all the data to like monitor, like to evaluate the processes. So um, yes, we can like try um, as long as we got um, the data to model like how they run their processes. Of course, we can like diagnose where are the environmental impact lying with. But of course, if there's like a privacy wall, um, it's very hard to also 
analyze that as well. And um, in terms of providing um, change to societal opinion, I think it's very a scientific way to showcase what our, yeah, how we can, um, what's it called, proceed in terms of being more sustainable and doing um, these like product or processes evaluation. It's quite um, interesting way to, um, to showcase that. And I guess it's also got more about, um, um, more about like education in terms of the public, how life cycle assessment work as well, so that they can understand the results and how it's um, carried out in terms of the process and assumptions. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great answer. And I think it kind of maybe if we if we ask one of these other questions, because it's quite it's quite related and it's like, you know, the question was about how reliable life cycle assessments are in making these assessments and you know predicting future environmental impacts you kind of hinted there that you needed all the data so perhaps maybe we could talk about that that's exactly that's exactly right uh, uh, you know it's um life cycle assessment uh, uh, sits on a very simple uh, set of algebraic equations it's not really complicated uh, to perform the complexity is really getting the scenarios right uh, and actually getting the real data to work with. Uh, and this is why we feel that uh, we have been able to make a little bit of a difference with all of these studies because we've always been working with the industry that was leading uh, basically that product or process development. And it is by having access to the real data that then what you can show really becomes meaningful. Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, uh, the impact or the predictions uh, may not necessarily reveal to be the right ones. Yeah, I, I get. I guess one one of the other questions here, which is kind of relevant, is um, is a, a broader question. Uh, there's questions about tree planting, but actually, the question is is about could you put climate change adaptation goals into the because at the moment your kind of life cycle assessment is focused on the climate change mitigation kind of targets and, and there are other targets in that climate and and in without having adaptation we won't meet the net zero so so may, is is that something that you were thinking of or is it possible Charnet, would you like to go first cool um so in terms of adaptation it does also so when we carry out life cycle assessment we do look at um policy in place and like what are the possible scenarios but also look at behavior in terms of feeding that in in terms of how would that work in terms of so we do do um so it does um so we can consider it for scenarios so it depends on, on like what are what how would we move in the future except um so that's how we could scope out our scenarios that way um so that's really what I can say in terms of, so even for like the um, usable and single use mask, we um, talk to our behavior behavior guys and say like, what is it likely to happen? How like, what is like, whether it's likely that um, they'll use the mask or not? And what are, what is to like scope out what scenarios we are um, in terms of adaptation It's kind of like, how would in 10 years time, how would this, how would we progress in that sense? Um, I guess, um, yeah, this is why sometimes we do need to do like social analysis, also like economic projections to like understand like how would future scenario works as what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Janet. Um, so just final question then, uh, as we're on the top of the hour, but um, I guess a question here is about whether LCA can be applied to any industry, like clothes manufacturing, what are the challenges, who should be the stakeholders, how do we kind of, you know, could we create a virtual circle for certification or something like that? Paolo, do you want to have a go? Oh, it can certainly be applied to absolutely any industry, and actually it has been applied already to textile. There is, uh, there, there, there is for example, um, a very old study that looks at the LCA applied to, the, to a cotton t-shirt, and that is actually what we use in the classroom when we um, ask the students to think through, you know, the life cycle methodology, and we take the t-shirt and basically ask them to, to think about every single step of the process. And usually, you know, the coloring, the dyeing is obviously what has got the greatest impact. So it can definitely be applied to anything. And in relation to the stakeholders, it really depends on what question you're trying to answer. 
uh, and, and whether it is uh, to society to think that maybe we shouldn't throw away a t-shirt every five minutes yeah. because that actually has an impact on the earth, you know, growing and harvesting the cotton and then all the manufacturing of, the, of that into the actual t-shirt. Whether it is speaking to the industry so that we can help them identifying what we call the hotspots, so the steps in the process that need to be looked at, improved, and, uh, and perhaps totally transformed. All right. Thanks very much. I think there's so many questions left. I think Paola and John, you'll have, we'll to have a look them offline. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for that absolutely fascinating insight into life cycle assessment. Really great. So um, I just think close the event now, but keep an eye out for the next one. But don't forget, there's a huge number of uh, recorded sessions on YouTube. So you can have a look, uh, look through those too, so you never miss an episode. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, everyone. And uh, have a good day.